Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. The Stratus Pod Kit is one of the most user-friendly, easy-to-use pods on the market. Find out more about it, especially if you are someone who wants to kick smoking. That's what it's all about by heading to vaporium.nz. We have a good uh, range of podcasts coming up this week for you. If you'd like to know more about them, stick around at the end of the show and we'll tell you what's going on. Some exciting ones coming up shortly. Uh, But right now we're going to be having a chat with a man who uh, people know his name. Most people know his uh, business nous, uh, and that is Rob Fife, former CEO of Air New Zealand. Uh, he gave us an hour of his time today, which was really interesting to hear. Very interested to hear his thoughts around uh, coronavirus and COVID because he was a part of the government initiative to look at that. So make sure you have a listen out for that. And whilst he uh, wouldn't endorse any particular politician in New Zealand, it was very interesting to hear his views on, in this current climate, whether a change of government would be good or whether a, a, a continuing down the same path would be a better option for New Zealand. Make sure you listen out for those comments as well. Here's Rob Fife. Right about now, live with Rob Fife, uh, former CEO in New Zealand. G'day, Rob. Yeah, g'day, Pat. How are you? I'm doing very well. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. I... Um, I was just thinking, actually. I mean, you left Air New Zealand in 2012. Is it is it still cool to introduce you as former CEO of Air New Zealand? Is it weird having something nearly a decade old sort of be one of your main identifying <laughs> attributes right now? Well, well, I'll tell you a funny story. I was down in Hawke's Bay in uh, February for Elton John concert. Right. And I was walking through the, um, through the kind of the crowds at Mission Vineyard and this woman comes up to me and said, uh, are you Rob Fife? And I, actually, I was kind of had a hat on, and I was in, like, concert gears, right? So I looked nothing like like my former CEO self. And anyway, <laughs> I said, yeah, yes. She said, CEO of Air New Zealand. And I said, well, I haven't been for eight years. Yeah. And she said, well, never mind. I've got a complaint I want to share with you, right? So eight years after the fact, and I still couldn't avoid the uh, the Air New Zealand complaint. So there you go. Are you a, like, do you have a fly jet star, or are you always on Air New Zealand because of the history? No, I tell you, I, I uh, even when I was at Air New Zealand, one, once a quarter, I would religiously fly on another airline. Right. I always wanted to see what was going on competition yeah likewise i often uh flew down the back of the aircraft you have much different conversations if you're flying in economy than you do in, in business class because you're you know a little bit closer together it's a bit more intimate yep yep uh so you know I, I i mean i fly in new zealand obviously when i can i feel tremendous loyalty to the uh to the old firm but um but these days i travel a lot well <laughs> i was traveling a lot uh <laughs> and you you know you kind of jump on whoever's going to get you to the uh, to the right place gosh i mean like you are former ceo now but that must be one of the most surreal experiences ever to see a current ceo of in new zealand on a on like a Jetstar flight or a Qantas flight or something that people must double take when that happened it'd be like someone i don't know whoever the person is who runs coke imagine them being sent out in public drinking pepsi sort of thing well i'll tell you another another very funny story. So I'm uh, one of the things I used to do when I was at in New Zealand is once a month I'd go and work somewhere in the business, right, just for a day on a shift so I could 
you know, I'm cleaning toilets or I'm working on the hangar or I go out with a crew and serve tea and coffee on the aircraft. And quite often if I was flying somewhere, I'd serve tea and coffee. Anyway, I was in uh, on Qantas uh, one day flying from uh, Wellington to Canberra because Air New Zealand didn't fly on that route and I right. had to get to Canberra. And uh, I, uh, I jump on the plane and the crew, the uh, Qantas crew, they were a New Zealand-based crew and they instantly recognised who <laughs> I was. And anyway, one thing led to another. I said, oh, quite often when I'm on the Air New Zealand uh, flights, they, uh, you know, I help them out with the tea and coffee. And they said, oh, well, you can help us out with the tea and coffee if you want. <laughs> so I get up and there I am serving tea and coffee on this Qantas flight going to, uh, to Canberra with the, these crew. There are obviously quite a few New Zealanders on the flight, so people started taking pictures, right? Because as you say, they thought this is kind of this is a slightly odd situation. Yeah. Then the crew, then the crew started getting nervous that they were going to get themselves in a, in a bit of strife if right. any of these pictures ever made it <laughs> back to uh, back to their bosses. So I got banished uh, back to my seat and told that I couldn't do it anymore. So I mean, just just think it about was, uh, it was a funny time. Think about less than a decade onwards. Not only would those pictures have got out, they probably would have got out live from the plane's Wi-Fi whilst you were still between like across the Tasman uh, to, to to Facebook, Twitter, and whatever else they want to be. Before you landed, there would have been people probably waiting to talk to you about it. Tell me about it, right? But I, I tell you, even even before Wi-Fi, so you go back then. You know, I took over as CEO of Air New Zealand in two thousand five. Even back then, if I got on a plane and started chatting with the crew down the back in the galley, you know, I'd always go and have a natter to the uh, crew. By the time that flight landed in somewhere like LA, LA, yeah the whole entire crew population somehow knew about everything you've been talking about down wow. in the galley. So they had their, they had their ways and means even back in those days. But, so yeah. what, what you're saying is basically social media is just the latest version of the grapevine, but it's always been around. It's always been around. It's definitely more instantaneous uh, than it was, but you know, it's always been around for sure. I was wondering, um, I was working in Talkback at the time that you were CEO, and you left at the end of 2012, is that right? Is that your last year? Yeah, that's right. And I think it was 2013-ish that the national government then sold off some shares in our state-owned assets, including about another 25%-ish of Air New Zealand. I I mean, completely random question, but did that have anything to do with it? Was that something you weren't supportive of, or...? No, no, no. No, I was a big supporter, actually. uh, uh, The less involvement the uh the government has in the airline i think the better for the airline is, right. is my personal view uh and we've been lobbying for quite some time uh for the government to uh to sell down its stake because one of the reasons other investors didn't want to invest in the airline is there wasn't enough of what's referred to as liquidity so you know you could buy you, know, you could buy a few million shares in new zealand but there were so few shares trading on any one day yep. that a lot of the the big institutions and so on didn't want to take a stake in the airline because they said, you know, if, if we ever wanted to get out, we wouldn't be able to sell down quick enough because right. there's so few shares trading. And the main reason for that is because the government owns 70-odd percent of the airline. So by selling down shares, then they actually kind of 
created more incentive for other people to invest in the airline and that, that's exactly what's happened since they did that. So more shares on the market, literal more individual shares on the market, mean bigger companies can get a bigger stake which makes it more attractive. Correct. Yeah, right. Correct. And so what, what that meant is you uh, saw a number of institutional investors and mutual funds and so on start to invest in the airline where they weren't prepared to do that before and that was good for the share price so it meant there was more demand for the shares and that increased uh, the share price but it also diversified the uh, shareholding base for the uh, airline that's you know that's a good thing for the airline as well. I was wondering when uh, the coronavirus lockdown hit and all of a sudden it was like Street, I was about to say it was like 9-11, I don't like that kind of tragedy, but the, the, the airs were empty, the, the flights stopped all over the world like it did around 9-11. Um, and mm. obviously some airlines around the world uh, struggled a lot through that. But we are, we being in New Zealand, we, it feels like we all own it. <laughs> well, we do, I guess, in part. 51% um, owned by the government. I was thinking, how does that work for an investor? It must be a goldmine for an investor because if the government owns 51%, They'll never let it go bankrupt, which means the investors, the private investors of the other 49-ish percent, whatever it is, it must be like a sweet deal as an investor. I don't own any shares, so I'm a little bit naive to this, but if you've got a uh, country backing an airline to not let it fall over, it must be a pretty solid investment for the private investors owning the other 47, 48, 49% because you know it's never going to go under. Well, you know it's never going to go under, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that the value of your equity uh, will be protected. Right. Um, so, you know, if you go back to following the ANSEC collapse, the government bailed out the airline. Uh, they invested $800 million in the airline. So this is back in uh, early uh, 2002. Mm-hmm. And in that process, Basically, all the shareholders that own shares in the airline at that stage, all their equity pretty much get got diluted away to right. nothing. So although they had shares in the airline, their shares were worth nothing because in exchange for their eight hundred million, you know, the government got eighty or ninety percent of the um, of the airline. Right. So it gives you a degree of confidence the airline uh, won't fail. And Air New Zealand has a very high credit rating, a, a very good credit rating because people perceive the government stands behind it. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily protect the value of, of your investment. We, I was thinking about this with, um, you know, I, I had a, a, a couple of politicians on during lockdown and we had little chats around how we as a country can get our economy back post-COVID, you know, which might take, who mm-hmm. knows, a decade to get back, but whatever. And we were coming up with little slogans for, for tourism, like, you know, we can't do can't do uh, Queensland, do Queenstown, you know, uh, can't do France, do Fakatane, that sort of thing. And it was this idea of us being loyal to New Zealand, putting our dollars into New Zealand and into things like Air New Zealand, but also looking for loyalty back again. In other words, Air New Zealand, as an example, if they could charge 200 bucks for a ticket between Auckland and Wellington, but that like break-even mark was 100 bucks. maybe they charge 150 So everyone sort of wins and encourages people to get out the door and encourages money to go out the country. I'm wondering with something that's half-owned by the government, by us, where is the line between, um, you know, private entity and, uh, you know, state asset that's really set up as a good for the country? Um, yeah, like the making profits versus providing a service. How do you 
kind of dance that line with something that's owned mostly by the by the government? Well, and this, you know, I've got a really clear view on this. You you have to run the airline on a fully commercial basis. So, you, you know, when I was CEO, you want to run the airline to say, right, we want to deliver great outcomes uh, for our customers yep. uh, because that's what will motivate them to come back and fly with us again. That in turn should deliver great outcomes for your shareholders and you'll never deliver great outcomes for your customers unless you have your employees on board and really engaged and mm -hmm. wanting to deliver. Because ultimately, the airline business isn't about planes, right? It's all about people. If you have a good or bad flight experience, assuming the plane actually gets there, which fortunately 99.99% <laughs> of the time it yeah. does, um, then if you have a good or bad experience, it's about someone, something someone did to you that was really good or really bad, right? So as, as a leader of that organisation, you're wanting to give people the, the tools, the, the training, the, the motivation uh, to create great experiences for your customers. If, if for some reason, you know, the government wants Air New Zealand to, uh, to fly to Whakatane and it doesn't make sense for the airline economically to fly to Whakatane, then that's a choice the government has if it wants to pay the airline to or subsidise the airline to fly there because it's a social service or whatever. Right then the government should make that decision, but it should make that decision independently of owning the airline as a, uh, as a shareholder. Because as, as, as a company, you actually have to do what's in the best interest of all your shareholders, not just one, even if they happen to be the uh, majority shareholder. That, so, you know, by way of example, yep. uh, Air New Zealand, when I was there, would be subsidised to fly the, to the Cook Islands. You know, mm -hmm. we couldn't make money out of flying to the Cook Islands um, but the Cook Islands government, uh, no doubt with New Zealand aid money and Australian aid money, uh, would subsidise the airline to fly there because tourism was so important to the uh, to the islands. Right. And, and I think that's exactly how the model should work. And when you say it should happen outside the kind of commercial entity of the airline, that implies any airline could fly that route and potentially get that subsidy. Just because Air New Zealand happened to get it, it doesn't matter that they're in New Zealand. It's because it's sort of separate to the commercial entity of the of the airline. Correct. Yeah, and then, the, you know, the government can potentially tender out that opportunity and say, yeah. right, we want someone to fly to, uh, to use Whakatane as an example, who's prepared to do it for the least amount of subsidy, you know, and you can create a competitive tension out there. That, that, to my mind, is a much more... Everyone then knows which lane they're swimming in, right? If you yeah, try yeah. and say to me as CEO, well, we want you to make a profit, we want you to pay a dividend, we want you to look after all the other shareholders, and we want you to do this kind of social good flying, then it all becomes a bit confused, and you can never really measure whether anyone's doing the best job they can do, right? It's just a mismatch of, of objectives. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So it's almost like you run it, and uh, there's almost like a, like a charity wing of the airline. Not that it is that, but it's almost. It's I see what you're saying by separate to the commercial sort of plan. And 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 I guess as long as Air New Zealand can decline that, is that a possibility that even though the government's asking it, Air New Zealand, you as the CEO could go, yeah, no thanks, we don't, we're not interested in that. Or is that more well, of a grey area? At a, in a commercial level, well, when I was there, the, the government was very comfortable that, you know, that 
the uh, shareholding relationship was at arm's length. So we made some very tough decisions. You know, when you think when I took over as CEO, uh, we had a Helen Clark-led uh, Labor government yep. uh, in power. Um, I think we had uh, somewhere between two and a half and 3,000 redundancies in my first uh, first two years in the role. I mean, there's a lot of change going on. We really had to modernise the airline. Uh, and the the Labour, you know, we had protest marches. It was, you know, it was a very difficult time uh, for the airline. Very important changes, but very difficult. And, you know, the, the Labour government and, and Helen Clark stood right back from that and said, you know, the airline needs to do what's right for the airline. Um, and they were quite unambiguous about that. And, you know, so that decision or those decisions, just like decisions of which routes we fly, the government wasn't trying to twist our arm to say, you know, you, right. you can't go through that redundancy program or whatever. But ultimately, coming back to the route question, you know, if you're running the airline on a commercial basis, there'll always be, you know, you decide whether to fly a route or not fly a route, there'll always be a price rider, which right. will make sense to do it. Yeah. So it just comes down to a negotiation between how valuable is that to the government in a national interest sense versus you know, what's it take to incentivize the airline to reallocate capacity to, to that particular route? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. I'm sorry to be talking about New Zealand for the first start of this. I kind of didn't really think this was what we wanted to talk about. But um, I've always, I, and I have this question asked of me a lot, not that I'm an expert, just kind of in barroom conversations. Like from Auckland, why does it usually cost so much less to get to Sydney than it does to get to Queenstown? What's the, what's, how does that work? Yes, so there's, there's kind of two parts of the puzzle. Um, firstly, if you look at the aircraft that Air New Zealand is flying around, if, if I want to fly a seat on a really large aircraft, say from, uh, say I'm flying a 777 across the Tasman, for example. Yep. Um, and there's a whole range of aircraft flying on those routes, but say I'm flying a 777, the cost to fly each seat a kilometre. Yep might cost me, let, let's just use for argument's sake, might cost me, say, five cents per kilometre per right. seat to right. fly. Um, if I'm flying a, uh, a seat from Auckland to Nelson on a turbo, you know, Q300, a Bombardier 50-seat turboprop, mm -hmm. uh, it might cost me 30 cents per gotcha. kilometre per seat to fly that seat. So you get this much greater economy of scale with a much bigger aircraft. So that's that's one of the um, uh, the economic drivers. Um, the second thing is that in terms of aircraft efficiency, aircraft use a lot more fuel uh, getting up to altitude and kind of coming back down for altitude than they do in the cruise. Yep. So uh, shorter routes are a lot less fuel efficient to fly and right. fuel makes up a, a, a large proportion of the cost of operating a, um, uh, an aircraft. Uh, you, you then have a whole bunch of uh, issues like uh, the economics of kind of airports and all sorts of other things. New Zealand airports typically uh, can be quite expensive to fly in and out of. And then undoubtedly, you get a competitive dimension, you know, which is, you know, if the more competitive a route is, 
um, you know, an, an airline has to chase harder to try and fill their aircraft so they'll yep. accept smaller margins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look at airlines overall, they typically only make about a 4% profit margin. Um, but, you know, if I look at averages, typically an airline's probably losing money on 20 or 30% of its routes. Right, wow. And it might be making 15 to 20% on some routes, you know, and it has to kind of average all of uh, that out. And when I was at Air New Zealand, I certainly remember periods when I joined Air New Zealand, we were losing a million dollars a week flying those transition routes. So they were the least profitable routes in the network. Why do you fly them? Well, you fly them because the people that come off that route then might jump on a, say they're coming from Australia to New Zealand, they then might jump on a, Auckland Queenstown flight or right. Auckland Wellington flight, and you right. make money on that flight, so you kind of just average the whole thing out. Right, right. That that's scary. That four percent thing. It's it's a silly comparison, but it makes me think about when I was a student and I used to work at petrol stations. They said no matter no matter the price of fuel, it was something like a six percent profit margin. So whether it was, you know, now it's two bucks a liter, or whether when I was working it was you know eighty seventy cents a liter. It was about that was about the margin purely for petrol, which is why you saw um, petrol stations turn into mini supermarkets to actually make some money yeah. on top of what they're doing. But that that means at four percent, if you're, I, I'm just picking a number out of the year because I'm thinking four hundred seats, etc. If 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 a flight took in a million bucks to fly whatever road, like one flight, that, that was the amount of money that went for tickets. That's only forty thousand dollars of profit if it's completely full for whatever route that is. That's a really small margin. Well, so I'll give you two stats. When, again, when I joined Air New Zealand, we were flying these little 19-seater aircraft around uh, the country. Uh, those little beach 1900 aircraft, the average profit per flight was $46. Wow. It's kind of, and you think that's less than one airfare, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you also, if you also put that 4% in context and you're flying an A320 from Auckland to Wellington, and typically you'd have 150 50 passengers on board, then the profit margin is six passengers, right? Yeah, right. So if, you, if that aircraft takes off with 144 passengers on board, you only just broke even. Right. If it took off with 130 passengers on board, you're losing a truckload of money. So, so you know, that in itself, the profit margin is a, ultimately a very, very small number yeah, of yeah. passengers, which is why, you know, when you're, when you're trying to get those aircraft full, um, you know, you will often offer some very cheap fares because you're better to have someone sitting in a seat than no one, right? It makes me think about during this COVID uh, dilemma we're in when you see, not so much at the moment, but certainly right in that time where we were kind of just starting to go back to flights, you'd see not necessarily repatriation flights, but flights in general with like two people on a whole 747-400 coming internationally. I was just, I, I shudder to think after you've just said that how much money that would be costing the the company itself. I guess for any any I mean I, I run a small company that's what this is part of. Obviously we don't have anywhere near the kind of budgets or numbers, but thinking about taking a hit like that or a proportional hit like that for any kind of company would be catastrophic. Could be catastrophic in a very short time, which is why I guess you see airlines shutting down through things like nine eleven or like the COVID crisis because you can't you can't maintain it. Well, you know, to put it in context, I'm I'm involved. I'm still involved in the industry. I sit on the um, board of Air Canada okay. uh, today. Um, and to put in context, you know, when we uh, went into uh, COVID, and this is despite standing down 
you know, almost 60% of our staff. Mm -hmm. So we started with 38,000 employees. We stood down 21. Uh, We're still burning through at the moment, uh, or this this is the last figures we announced to the market. We're still burning through $20 million of cash a day. Wow. That's what we're spending running the airline. That's our net position our revenue you know less our uh, cost is minus 20 million dollars a day over over six billion dollars a year but how do you how does a company even do that i mean if the profit margins are so small i okay i can do um economies of scale right so i can think about my own little business yeah if the profit margins are so slim so that's how i can compare it uh, you know like uh like if the profit margins are only 6%, it takes me a long time to build up the capital to then lose, you know, let's say 80% a day for an extended period of yeah. time. How, how does that even, I don't need, I imagine that just means massive debt because I can't imagine massive capital being sitting there in a place like Air Canada. Correct. So, I mean, we, if you take Air Canada, we went into this in a very uh, strong position. So we had built up uh, a lot of cash, you know, we've gone into this with about $6 billion of cash sitting on our wow. balance sheet. Okay. We've gone up, we've now gone and raised a, a whole lot of debt. We've raised um, uh, some, uh, new, we've issued some new equity. So that was to get our, our position up to about $10 billion uh, of cash to try and tide us through this uh, situation. You know, yep. the, the government has extended a, and Air is about, three or four times the size of Air New Zealand, just to put it in context, you know, the New Zealand government's extended a loan to Air New Zealand for $900 million, you know, so so you're right, ultimately, you either have to issue new shares or you've got to get debt, that's the only way, and just try and tide yourself, uh, tide yourself over, but the challenge is trying to figure out how long this is going to go on for, and, yeah. and none of us know the answer to that question at the moment. Is that 4% profit margin sort of an industry standard? So is it the same sort of Air Canada, uh, that that's what it is? Or is New Zealand, because of our isolation, not quite? there's not quite as much fat with us? Um, so actually the industry standard is lower than 4%. Oh, wow. Um, if you take a long-run view, so if you took a 10-year view, the industry um, average profit margin is down around one5 or 2%. Wow. Air New Zealand typically has been much better than industry average. I mean, we've been, it's a very uh, well-run uh, airline. It's, it's you know, recognised around the world as one of the best performing airlines with great product and service. So it has been able to uh, perform better than the average. But, uh, you know, realistically, that margin's probably, if Air New Zealand has been in the six to eight percent in more recent times, right? But if you look at again, as I say, over the last decade, then the average probably ends up around four percent, which is probably double the industry average. Wow, that's impressive. Then, so we're doing. We, I mean, comparatively speaking, we're doing really well. But I, I obviously that's, you know, I can't even remember the name of it. But you know, every now and again, some uh, wealthy entrepreneur sticks their head up and goes, you know, I'm going to do a route which is Dunedin, Queenstown, Nelson, Christchurch, Dunedin, like a bus route sort of thing. And they try, I think one was called Kiwi Air from memory. Anyway, recently that's happened yeah. Um, yeah. and it doesn't last very long. And that's obviously why, because if there's small profit margins, it's either massive debt or massive success and there doesn't seem to be any in-between ground. It's, on the surface, airlines look like an easy business to get into. You know, you go and lease a plane and, and off you go. Actually, it's really tough. It's tough 
because of the profit margins. Yep. You need scale. And then ultimately, uh, people are loyal, right? And you need a network. And, you know, you'll, you become a member of Air New Zealand's loyalty program, Airpoints. Then, uh, you know, if you're, if you're flying to LA on Air New Zealand, then you want to fly, you know, to Wellington, you want to fly to Queenstown, you want to accumulate your points so you can spend, you know, and so yep, on yep. and so forth. So if a, if a little airline starts up and they're just flying on one or two or three w routes, it's very hard to drag customers away because, as I say, they tend to want to create and build their loyalty with a, with a preferred airline. Uh, so it's a very, very tough business to, uh, to to break into. And I guess it's that I, I, I watch those kind of Shark Tank programs and like looking at people talking about business and new invention. And I guess if that little business does start up and it does decide to fly, you know, Queenstown, Nelson – if that becomes commercially successful, then someone like Jetstar or Air New Zealand will probably just put a flight in there anyway. Like if someone proves the path, then surely the big boys will just come in and, and take it over anyway because that's now a commercially viable route. Yeah, so that, I guess that's the risk. So if you're going to be a, a new entrant into the market, you need to pick the routes that are not viable for the scale players, right? So you yeah. need to find routes that are supporting aircraft that's maybe got... 10 or 20 or 30 seats, but it's never going to support an aircraft that's got yeah, 70 right. or 150 seats. Um, and those routes do exist. So there are, you know, there are routes, there's, you know, airlines out there, Sounds Air, you know, is a really, really yep. uh, good operation uh, servicing predominantly, you know, the top of the South Island, lower part of the uh, North Island. They do a um, great job and there's a place for an airline like that alongside Air New Zealand. And I think they kind of, cohabitate uh, quite well together because they're flying routes that uh, would never be big enough to support the New Zealand aircraft. Yep, I'm thinking it's Mount Cook Air. I think there's a Mount Cook Air and I think there's an airline that flies over to Great Barrier as well. Great Barrier is a barrier air or something like that. So yeah, so little ones around yeah. the place. Hey, I'm interested yeah. um, that at, obviously with our coronavirus lives we're living in right now, quite near the start, um, you were involved with the government in... Um, I guess being being a conduit between business and government, look at the economic, um, you know, the, the way to revive economically. That was a position that the government approached you on. Is that correct, or did you offer your services and they take you up on it? Um, so I call these things. It's kind of a bit of both, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I'd been, um, I'd, I'd been quite vocal along with um, some other, I guess, kind of sideline commentators concern that the government wasn't moving fast enough to uh, to lock the country down right. in the early days. And I, you know, if you go back a couple of weeks before lockdown, we were still letting tourists into the country, right? And I was like saying, this is nuts. We're letting people into the country from these areas of the world that have already got quite high numbers of, uh, of infection. Um, it's just an inevitability that it's going to arrive here and start causing us real, real issues. Yep. Uh, so I was advocating, uh, as were a number of others, and so the Prime Minister offered me an opportunity, to, uh, along with a few others, to have a, a chat with her about our concerns and to share a, a few insights into what her thinking and plans were. And off the back of that, um, she identified that there would be value in, uh, in having uh, someone sitting in central government alongside her team interfacing with the business community. And right. She asked me if I would play that role. And that was um, 
that was on the Sunday before we went into we went into then uh, uh, level three on the Monday and level four on that Wednesday. Yep. So I was actually in, I, I was in Greymouth at the time having this conversation on the phone. I was down at uh, at Pike River. In fact, I just sent I, I just spent uh, earlier that day out at um, uh, Gloria Vale. I was oh, wow. interested to go out and kind of have a look at what what that setup was all about, which was fascinating. And uh, I came back, I had this conversation with the Prime Minister, I jumped on a plane, went up to Auckland, packed a bag and went down to uh, Wellington and that was me for the next nine weeks. So I'm just writing down Gloria Vale because we can't just skip over that as quickly as that. we we got, we got to come back there, but let's stick with coronavirus uh, uh, for now. Um, and so during the lockdown, were you someone who was in communication with the government? Were you... Like as a conduit, my word, not yours, between government and business, yeah. were you talking about when do we reopen, how do we allow businesses to survive, what we need to do? What role did you play during the lockdown and, and, and what outcomes did you see from your involvement? Yeah, so the, my primary uh, role when I was down there was to try and figure out how we could mobilise New Zealand businesses to support the government's effort and response to the virus. Right. So it wasn't so much focused on how we get business up and running again. At that point, we'd locked the country down. And one of the issues that businesses were finding is there are a heap of people out there with resources and ideas and capability to support the government, but they had no they had no way in to kind of connect with anyone to right. figure out how they could um, how they could add value. So you know, for example, you know, we, we had the um, team at, at Zuru Toys saying to me, look, you know, they've got 5,000 employees in China on the ground. We were needing to source um, uh, personal protective equipment mm -hmm. for the hospitals and so on. And they were saying, look, we've got people on the ground in China that can go and uh, evaluate factories. They can uh, get product tested and so on. And no one at that point could jump on a plane and fly it there, right? We had everything yep. locked down and, and it was locked down at the China event. So, so they were prepared to go and source all this product for the New Zealand government. Government doesn't really move very fast, right? That's not yeah. in government's nature. So I said, well, you know, you'll need to give me an opportunity to go and get some budget signed off. They said, look, we'll just buy it. We'll spend our money. We'll buy it. We'll figure out later on kind of how, how the government, you know, can reimburse us for the uh, for the cost of this. And we got a job done in a couple of weeks that probably would have otherwise taken a couple of months. And so it was that it was that type of thing. I was looking to say government's good at some things, um, but they can't necessarily move at speed. They're not necessarily good at taking risk and innovating. So, you know, my uh, my focus was saying how can I put government and business together to accelerate right. some things, to amplify some things, to achieve things that that otherwise wouldn't be able to achieve with government just left to its own devices. Out of interest, um, when you said, uh, we'll just buy it, who's the wheel? Who went out and bought the PPE? So so, and th th there are a number of uh, companies I work with, but uh, in that instance, um, Zuru spent several million dollars of their own money just wow. saying, we'll just, we'll just fund it, we'll just buy it. Uh, and we trust basically that I'd figure out with Grant Robertson uh, how at some point they could be reimbursed for that. 
uh, Stephen Tindall in the uh, warehouse uh, did the same thing. Stephen Tindall, in fact, underwrote an order of 50 uh, ICU ventilators because we didn't wow. have enough uh, ICU beds in New Zealand. He, he, you know, I think the value of that was three or four million dollars. He said, look, I'll just underwrite that. Let's get the order in place and we'll figure out downstream you know, how, how that gets recompensed. So these guys were putting their own money and quite frankly, you know, their bulls on the line to uh, just say, we'll do what needs to be done and, and let's worry about the detail later on. It's probably amazing as well, just purely because of our, we're talking about economies of scale again. I mean, that one individual, Sir Stephen Tyndall, can underwrite, um, you know, ventilators, which probably was enough to help the country. Whereas you look to a place like America, and obviously it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger story than just not enough ventilators if you look what's going on there. But because we're small, proportionally, even if we had a bad run, that might have been enough. But gosh, America needs tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of that kind of product which would be a lot harder to actually physically get your hands on so might have been an era, a time where our size really helped us perhaps I, I, th- I think our size and the fact it, it, and it helped us in many ways I think so I agree with you you know we didn't need as much of this stuff but also because we're a small size everyone kind of knows each other and we yep. you know, can talk to each other and get stuff done the ability for us to move at speed. I mean, we ordered and got stuff on flights and boats coming here in terms of PPE well before Australia. I was talking to the Australians and I was talking to the um, Americans. We were ahead of them in the queue. And if we hadn't done that, uh, we wouldn't have only been waiting a few weeks. We could have been waiting several months before we got our orders in the queue if we hadn't moved at speed. And I ran a... uh, Oh, I didn't run, but I was involved in a um, in a, a, a conference call where we got a whole bunch of doctors on the front lines in New York and Europe and so on to talk to the Ministry of Health here to share with them their experience of what they were seeing because they clearly had big problems in their countries. Yeah, We weren't seeing issues here, so we wanted to see is there things we could learn from their experience. And this doctor who was on the front lines in New York was saying for the first three or four weeks in New York, they were being issued one mask a week wow. as doctors and they were having to take it home each day and wash it in their uh, washing machine and put it on and wear it. Whereas, you know, we were provisioning and we had the capacity for people to have, you know, eight to 10 masks a day wow. uh, if they were working in the uh, health system. So that, that just shows the, the value and the implication of being able to do some of these things at, at, at speed versus the alternative that was plainly evident in places like New York. It's also really nice to hear um, business being involved there as well. So often we hear in, in, in uh, you know, uh, societal conversation about how, uh, you know, business is the is the thing that drains and uses and abuses people and doesn't pay people enough money. We need a living wage and all that kind of stuff. And I don't necessarily disagree with a lot of that, but what we don't often hear is the opposite side of that conversation. And I believe often, you know, most of us would probably agree that you hear these arguments at the extremities and the truth is normally somewhere in the middle. And that seemed to be a lovely example you just gave of how business got involved and helped the whole country out. And without those businesses with that money or those individuals like Stephen Tyndall with that money, then they wouldn't have had the opportunity to help the whole country get through this. So it's quite nice to, to have that uh, at least out there, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and you know, it's, I, I felt I, I I came away from this whole experience 
thinking for a whole range of reasons. I'm glad I live here in New Zealand versus some other uh, places in the world. And, uh, you know, I saw many, many examples of that. You know, there's a, uh, a Sam Morgan and, uh, and, and Stephen Tyndall. So Stephen uh, funded a, a food initiative uh, to, to hoover up kind of uh, donated and leftover food and, and that's continuing. And ultimately I helped to uh, facilitate the government uh, putting some money into this initiative as well. But anyway, in, in April when people were in lockdown and you know, a number of people had already lost their jobs by that point of time, this initiative that they uh, funded um, provided uh, 1.5 million meals um, you know, free meals out to people in wow. the, you know, around New Zealand. And um, I didn't see the final numbers for May, but I think they did over 2 million uh, meals in May and so on, because all the traditional food banks weren't working when people were locked down yeah, because, course. you know, there was no way for them to get donations and all that kind of stuff. So so they were working, uh, this food network was working with, with Iwi and Salvation Army and others to get food out into these communities in need. And, you know, there's a lot of, of really, really cool stuff being done that, you know, as I say, I, I, I felt proud and privileged in some way to, you know, be a part of some of those initiatives in a country like New Zealand. We got a sense that everyone really did embrace this notion of being in this thing together and supporting each other. You um, you obviously made noises near the start that we um, took too long to shut down. Um, I've always sort of been of the opinion that with no with no perfect outcome, we acknowledge that we can never get a perfect outcome if we have a column of you know good decisions and a column of bad decisions. I would hope our government takes as many from the good and as few from the bad, and that's about as much as we can hope for. In hindsight now, as to where we are, how, how do you think the lockdown panned out? Uh, how do you think about the the open up? There was some people saying that we should have opened up sooner, um, but what what? Obviously, yeah. you were on the inside on some level. How would you rate how we've done and how this government's done in particular as to uh, where we're at today and how they got through the rest of lockdown? I, I, you know, for me, I reckon it's it's a 9 out of 10. You never get it perfect, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the government did a tremendous job. And you, you have you have to remember, it, it's it's pretty hard, actually. You know, it's... it's a, we only went into lockdown in, in late March. It's not that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, there was so much we didn't know, right? The, yep. So the Prime Minister and government were having to make these decisions, not really understanding how this virus actually worked, uh, not really knowing at that point what potential death rates could be. There were all sorts of people doing modelling, but they were, mm -hmm. they were kind of they were simulation models that were yeah. just guessing at what how big the problem could be. So... But, you know, and people were saying, well, we locked down, did we, re you know, Australia didn't lock down construction, did we need to lock down construction? Just didn't know any of these things, right? So I think the government's approach, having the courage, to, and, and despite my early criticisms, I think having the courage to go when they did, to have the courage to go as hard as they did, yep. has now earned us the right to have one of, if not the freest society in the world today in terms of our domestic society, right? The paradox is that that now creates some challenges for us because we have eradicated or eliminated the uh, virus. So, you know, the, it makes it more difficult for us to open our borders in any way because, you know, if we bring it back into the country, you know, we undo all the hard work and investment we've made. Yep, yep. So 
we are a little bit isolated, but I think the government has done an absolutely uh, tremendous job. Um, and I think they deserve uh, uh, absolute uh, credit for that leadership. Uh, I think now we're moving into a new phase and it becomes quite challenging figure out, figuring out as a trading nation, how we can get our international economy and people moving again uh, without creating any risk of bringing the virus back across the border. And that's a, that's a difficult challenge to solve, but I think we should be putting as much of our private sector and government uh, intellect against solving that problem as we can. I think um, it's a really interesting thing you say, and I think that we are almost standalone at the moment um, about yeah. how we are in the world. And just if people haven't heard yet, and I can do this little thing with Zoom where I can show you something, that just today, literally just today, coronavirus, Vietnam on high alert after first COVID cases in months. So Vietnam, which was one of those places that's also been held up yeah. as a shining light, I think they've had 15 cases of community transmission uh, today, and they're basically going wow. back into lockdown literally just today. So your um, your comment about getting back across the border, I think, is is true. Um, it also makes me think it's it's kind of ironic actually because as you were talking about um, the airlines going into debt, I kind of think well that, and you, I think you used the phrase to get through this. That sounds like that's the logical conclusion for us as well as a country. Like I'm someone, and I'm not. I'm. I'm I'm, I'm not putting myself up as any kind of expert in the world of business or the world of tax and how that works, but I'd be more than happy for the next decade to pay a teeny bit more in tax, whatever it is, a dollar per hundred dollars or whatever, um, to help support what we have to borrow to go through right now to keep us in this um, place where we're unique in the world at the moment, maybe literally when you see places like Vietnam having to shut back down again. Yeah, That's just so, my perspective though. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree with that perspective to a point. The one thing I would say is even with the, even if we change nothing from what we're doing today, yep. um, there's still a risk that this virus is going to get back into New Zealand. You For know, sure. we've got aircrew that are flying and come home and, you know, not required to uh, self-isolate, that are going out into the community. We have, you know, there's... The, the data now suggests as many as 50% of people that get this virus are asymptomatic. They yeah. never show uh, symptoms, but they're still able to uh, trans transmit it to, uh, to other people. So I think under any scenario, we have to at least plan for a possibility that we'll get the virus back into the country. And we need to be doing everything we can to make sure if that happens, we don't have to lock the country down again. And that means we need really good uh, testing. And, you know, we seem to be having this real battle to be testing uh, enough people at the moment. Uh, we need uh, a really good contact tracing system in place. And we seem to have a, be having a battle to accept we need a much bigger ambition in terms of contact tracing. Uh, so we should be investing, to your point, I'd like to be investing some of that $1 extra in tax or whatever it may be to make sure we're building better defences for what I think is potentially an inevitable reoccurrence of the virus at some point in time yeah. in New Zealand.
I guess we all hope. I mean, my, my father um, was in the 1948 polio epidemic. You know, he still has polio to this day. Yeah, um, yeah well, the effects of it, I should say. Um, and so I guess yeah. most of us, the world over, are just waiting for that vaccine and hoping it will come. But um, what I hear you, when you talk, it makes me think, I don't necessarily hear you saying this, but when you talk, it makes me think, what if that never happens? What if there is never that? Or what if this is like, and I don't mean like the flu, like the symptoms. I don't need any tweets about that. Yeah. But I mean like the flu, like next year there's a COVID-20. Then the year after that there's a COVID-21. And and so there's a cyclical nature to this. Then what? Yeah. Yeah, I, so I, when I'm talking to businesses, um, I'm telling them, based on everything I've read, I'm planning on the assumption that this is with us for uh, for for three years. Wow! So it could be longer, it could be shorter, but I'm planning for three years. The idea of a vaccine in twelve to eighteen months—that's going to enable us to vac- to vaccinate a few billion people in the world—is mm-hmm. um, is highly highly uh, improbable. Excuse me, Mo. Is it Jacinda giving you a call saying, oh, you're, well, well, you're there. Um, is, is, hi- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, is, um, I, I think it's uh, highly improbable. Yeah. I think, you know, it's more realistic that it's two and a half uh, to three years. And that is, and, and then there's, as you say, there's no guarantee. So, yeah. so I think, I think we have to plan for living with this for the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we shouldn't be thinking of this like a earthquake or a tidal wave or, you know, a terrorist event. This is not an event that come and go. It comes and goes. This is something that's going to be enduring. Um, do you have any opinions uh, outside the box looking conspiracy theory type stuff now as to whether it was a laboratory release thing or an act of nature out of interest? I've, I don't I don't have a theory and I mean sadly uh, in this day and age um, we we I, I don't think we'll, we'll actually ever know yeah, yeah. so you, you know there's so much in the media we just don't know what's kind of real versus what's fiction you know the the Americans will say one thing the Chinese will say something else um, you know who's 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 telling the truth you could you could see you could see the bat being infected with a uh, with a with a virus by a human, and you don't know if that's a make believe image yeah. or a, you know real image. So, so I've actually I just don't even invest any emotional energy or or time in trying to understand those issues because because I, I don't know who to trust <laughs> as a source of the information, right? Hey, um, are you someone who's interested in getting involved in politics? You seem to, obviously, you've had some thoughts and you've got some yeah, experiences. Is that something that interests you? Could you imagine getting involved in the in the push and shove of parliament? No. Not no, at all? Never. Not, not at all. I mean, for me, I tell you, like I'm a very, in, in a business sense, my style is very inclusive. Um, I like uh, being uh, out amongst uh, people, I'm very consultative, but ultimately, as a business leader, you get to make decisions and you are held accountable for those decisions. Um, I think the process of government uh, and consultation and democracy and so on would. Um, I don't think I've got the uh, patience for it. To be honest, <laughs> um, I just like to get. I just like to get on and get things. Uh, get get stuff done. And maybe it sounds like with your experience, um, you know, of, of what you've just gone through, 
uh, being involved in, I was going to say consultancy, but, you know, talking to the government about how to do things, you've actually impacted the country in a way maybe more effectively and better than any politician could anyway. Um, well, it's all about collaboration, right? And I think, you know, my business experience and expertise allows me to bring something to the table that's just a different a different skill set. And I, I, I'm all about collaboration and just recognising strengths. You know, I've got tremendous respect for the uh, Prime Minister. In fact, I, you know, I've thoroughly enjoyed working with her through this process and we continue to uh, have ongoing um, dialogue you know, around how how the recovery process uh, will plan it, pan out, and I'm I enjoy being able to provide a perspective and input and 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 provide networks and points of connection uh, for her uh, with without necessarily kind of being inside the tent and caught up in yeah. the day to day kind of machinations of that political world. As someone who's sort of a respected figure in the business world and New Zealand society in general, even though you don't want to get involved in politics, are you the kind of person that you know makes your views know about who you're endorsing? Do you endorse a prime minister as one of the two leaders at the moment, the person you'd prefer to see as prime minister for the next stage? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't at any point publicly uh, endorsed any uh, prime minister. My, my view and my approach has always been the more effective a government is yep. uh, when they're in power, the better it is for the country. You you want governments that get stuff done. We're in an incredibly fortunate position here in New Zealand, in my view, where whether um, uh, you're supportive of a Labour-led government or a National-led government, the difference is kind of plus or minus 10% either side. For sure. We don't have... The, radical polarization you see in uh and say the us or you're seeing in other parts of the, the world so my approach has always been to do everything i can to help the uh, sitting government to be as effective as possible and if i look back since i've been you know if, if we go back to my new zealand days working with um uh with with firstly helen clark then uh, uh then john key uh, you know, for a short period, uh, Bill English and, and, and now um, uh, with with uh, Jacinda Ardern, mm-hmm. um, I've had really, really successful and effective uh, working relationships uh, with all of those uh, with all of those prime ministers. In fact, if people would be surprised if I look back to my time at Air New Zealand, I, I actually think the Helen Clark led Labor government was probably a far more effective. Uh, supporter of uh, in New Zealand and what we were trying to achieve than the um, uh, John Key-led uh, national government was. Wow. And that had nothing to do with John's individual politics. Um, it was ju- just the nature of who, who, who the ministers were in the uh, key roles and what it was the airline was trying to achieve at that point in time. But, you know, the Hel- Helen Clark government's decision to bail out the airline at the time they did to the tune of $800 million uh, and set that up for a, a rebirth as a new airline mm-hmm. uh, and allow the sort of restructuring to take place that needed to take place was incredibly uh, courageous leadership from a, from a Labor government at the time. And, you know, I think 
New Zealand has benefited enormously mm. as, as, a, as a consequence. Well, hey, look, um, we'll let you go and attack if that's okay, but I cannot cannot move away, cannot say goodbye to you and thank you for your time until you tell us about Gloria Vale, because Gloria Vale for me is one of those places in New Zealand that I would love to rock up to with a, a camera and spend a weekend talking to people and interviewing them and finding out more about them. So please, please, please tell me your experiences of Gloria Vale. Yes, so, you know, I spent half a day out at Gloria Vale, and to be fair, I didn't um, I didn't really get a uh, chance. It was a few days before lockdown, so I was very conscious of the risk of, you know, you know what is a tight community of, of sure. you know, that they would be very uh, health conscious. So so my um, my focus was really, I was keen to go go out there and understand a little about their business operations and their um, business interests. All right. Uh, so that was the substance of my engagement. And uh, to be frank, looking through that lens, I was incredibly impressed. Uh, with with what those guys uh, do, they uh, create a whole bunch of consumer products. They've got a big uh, honey operation. Uh, they've got a um, a big operation in uh, in healthy confectionery products based on uh, on, on milk products, All right. um, which they sell uh, you know throughout uh, New Zealand uh, and the likes. And they they are very very uh, smart uh, business people. As I say, I didn't. I didn't get insights into the the culture or the community itself gotcha. and uh, and how it operates, but but a lot of people I you know I talked to on the west coast that interact with the um, uh, community only had really positive things to say about their engagement, the business ethics, and so on of the people that they deal with out there. And so I just wanted to at least get a little bit of a glimpse for myself. And as I say, in term, from a business perspective, I was, I was very impressed with their acumen. And so does that mean you're kind of move away from the icebreaker label and you're going to go on the board of Gloria Vale Milk Products or something? Is that the next step for the um, Rob Fife kind of business empire? <laughs> I, I don't think you'll uh, see me on, on the Gloria Vale um, board. But having said that, you know, my my stage in life, right, I'm in my I'm 59 now, um, a lot of my energy and time uh, is helping uh, young entrepreneurs, you know, people that are trying to figure out how to make their business and uh, all their passions more effective and more successful. So I do do a lot of mentoring and, and advisory stuff, not not for payment, just because I, I, I like to, have, you know, help people kind of achieve the, you know, the most they can in the context of whatever, you know, whatever their passions are. Hey, Rob, thanks for chatting to us today. This has been a blast. Oh, oh. Well, as you, as you uh, forewarned me at the at the outset, you never know what path these uh, conversations will take. But no, uh, I, I tell you, been, okay, if, been... if someone had said to me, I bet your $1,000 glory of will come up during your podcast today, I would have taken that bet <laughs> in a heartbeat. So, <laughs> so it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, what, what's the, the, the next kind of six months for you? What are we looking out for you? Where are we going to see Rob Fife? What's going on? Yeah, well, hopefully I'll continue to have the opportunity to work alongside um, government to help help us chart and navigate and plan uh, what our recovery and rebuild from this um, pandemic uh, looks like. You know, my when I when I left Air New Zealand, uh, you know, I got offered a number of airline CEO jobs around the world. I figured out, you know, I'm not especially good at airlines. 
um, I think what I am good at and what I'm passionate about is figuring out how to take the things New Zealand is really good at and right. figuring out how to leverage that on the world stage. And Air New Zealand was an example of that. Icebreaker uh, was an example of that. I just love finding ways to, to help New Zealand be more successful and ensure we get to continue to enjoy this amazing quality of life we, we have in our little little corner of the world. We might have to come and have a chat with you about how you help us make this uh, this podcast the biggest thing in the world at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, before we go, uh, two, two questions. The first question is just a yes or no, and then a potential answer, and then, a, and then an opinion-based question. You said you never endorse sort of a prime minister or anything. Would you like to do it for the first time here and now? And the second thing is, do you think that it would be helpful, harmful, or it wouldn't matter to change government in the middle of this pandemic recovery? Uh, so to the first question, um, no, I'm not going to uh, <laughs> uh, change uh, that position. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, however, I would say I, th- I think um, uh, Jacinda Ardern has done an outstanding uh, leadership uh, job through this uh, crisis. Uh, I actually... Uh, it's very rare. I think pe- people often vote for a change of government rather than vote for for supporting a government. So yeah. people vote government. People say people vote governments out rather than vote governments in. Yep. Um, I'm I'm I always start from a position that continuity of government is a good thing to get things done. I think our uh, our electoral term of three years is so friggin' short. It's ridiculous. So um, so I th- I think continuity of government through uh, a pandemic like this um, uh, just putting New Zealand politics aside uh, in general would be a uh, would, would be a good thing rather than a bad thing we should probably leave that alone because then we can start talking about uh, so they should keep trumping and that might be a different conversation altogether because that would be a continuity as well so yeah, well, I guess the 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 balance the balances, you know, I think not just within New Zealand, but the world looks at us, uh, seeing that we've navigated this to date very effectively. Um, you know, I don't think uh, they look at the US and yeah. the, uh, in the same vein. <laughs> hey, um, Rob Fife, thank you for giving us some time this morning. Really appreciate it, and um, have a splendid day. Cool. Thanks, Dave. All right, team, done and dusted. The Department of Conversation brought to you by Stratus, the most affordable alternative to smoking. The Stratus starter kit is under 25 bucks for three pods. Each pod lasts most users several days. So for 25 bucks, you basically get, let's say, two to four weeks worth of replacements for cigarettes. That's what it's about. It's about stopping smoking and replacing them with something else. The cost for one packet of cigarettes is about 25 bucks. So, you know, you get the replacements that will last you two to four weeks for the cost of one packet of cigarettes. And then when you get the pod refills, there are 20 bucks and you'll get four for less than 20 bucks, in fact. So it's a very uh, cheap alternative to smoking and it stops you from smoking as well, helps you get off smoking. Find out more about it by heading to vaporium.com. NZ. Okay, coming up in the next wee while, um, later on in the week, listen out for David Packman. Uh, you'll probably know that last week we were supposed to have Sam Cedar on. And of course, there was a, a horrific uh, tragedy. Uh, a good friend of Sam's and someone who works on his show, The Majority Report, passed away, Michael Brooks, and passed away the morning that Sam was supposed to come on. So obviously, uh, Sam didn't come on. We also have booked in to come David Packman. David Packman is a uh, political commentator, he's a progressive uh, TV, radio, internet host. 
uh, off uh, YouTube if you want to check him out and look him up. He's got 900,000 subscribers, so he's highly rated and, and, and much watched. David Packman will be along if you are a live streamer with me Thursday morning our time. Also, uh, Wednesday, we're having a chat with Anna Marbrook. Anna Marbrook is uh, a filmmaker, and she has a documentary in the New Zealand International Film Festival. Coming up next, though, as you listen to the sequence of podcasts, we're going to be talking with New Zealand acting and directing legend Michael Hurst. Michael Hurst will be joining us in the Department of Conversation. If you want to find out more about us, what we do, who we are, head to www.thedoc.nz or straight to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash docnz. For all that information, uh, feel free to connect with us if you've got any thoughts or you want to know anything or you've got any suggestions. Always happy to hear from you. Always happy to hear your thoughts. All right, team, stay safe. Until we see you next time, hooroo.